Please stand for the reading of God's word. It's just today in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 14. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up in your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of this coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that, was, that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Okay, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm preaching in the parables, and I'm continuing with the parable of the, the tares in the field, which I started last week. And the message today is, what really matters. Often the urgent crowds out what really matters. Or some kind of obsession that we get or something popular that's happening and we just think that matters. But then it really doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, what really matters in life? I believe that this parable can help us answer that question. So, does it really matter whether you drive a Hyundai or a Jaguar? Does it really matter whether the Mets and Yankees come in last place or first place? They're heading for last place finishes, it could be. Does it really matter whether you have the newest smartphone? Does it, does it really matter that you have it right now? 
Does it matter that you see that latest movie? Oh, everybody's talking about it. I just have to see it. But does it really matter? The world gets so excited, but does it really matter in light of eternity? Who's the president or prime minister of really any country? In light of eternity, no earthly kingdom will stand. Does it matter if you do your best, if you do your best, because I believe a lot of things in life do matter, but if you do your best, does it really matter? We sweat over getting an A when a B would really just be okay. Like in 10 years, will it really make a difference whether you made an A or a B in that class? If you do your best. Now, if you don't do your best, shame on you. Do your best. <laughs> But we so obsess over things that don't really matter. Read with me, please, as we begin Matthew 13, verse 42 and 43. I'll go to verse 41, Matthew 13. This is the end of the parable of the sower and terror. This is his interpretation. And the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, Matthew 13, 41. And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. You know what matters? If you live a life offending others, and a life of such iniquity, that you will be gathered up and cast into a furnace of fire. I, now that matters. <laughs> and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And please read verse 43 with me. It says, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear the words of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, take this time and use it for your honor and glory that we could boil down and crystallize and distill a very complex life of many different uh, components, but that we would be able to uh, synthesize all of the complexities of life to what really matters. And thank you for this parable of the tares of the field that help us even to establish a grid for what really matters in life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So that's the question I'm asking, is what does really matter? Now in this parable of the tares in the field, it says it, there's a, there's a, a, whole, a householder, he owns a field. The field is his. And you know what, and so he, he sows feed, seed in his field, but then when people are sleeping, there's an enemy that comes along and sows tares or weeds in the field. And so the reapers, the, the servants of the householders say, well, what should we got to get rid of these tares? He said, no, let them both grow until the harvest. And then when the harvest comes, they separate the wheat from the tares. The tares they cast, they bundle them and cast them into the fire, and the wheat is taken into the barn. And that was the earthly story. And then Jesus gives the heavenly meaning of this. And from this parable, 
I believe we could establish a worldview to what really matters in life. Now, just real quick, by the way, Jesus told the parable that I just sum summarized to the multitudes while he was in a ship. And the parable is given in verses 24 down through verse 30 in Matthew chapter 13. And then he did a few other things. He told a, a few other parables. And then he departed from the multitudes and he gives the interpretation. If you look down in verse 36, Jesus sent the multitudes away. And when he, he went into a house, the disciples said, hey, tell us what that parable of the tares in the field mean. And so, whereas he gave the parable to the multitudes, he gives the interpretation to the disciples in a house. And my point about this parable, as I thought about it, is that this parable can help frame our worldview. As Jesus gives a synopsis of what really matters in life. Because it's about the world. And it's about the kingdom now, but then it's about the end of the world. And so he kind of summarizes all of life, of what's going on now, to the end. And, that, and I think from that we could say, wow, we need to establish what really matters, or a worldview. And what do I mean by a worldview? I mean a foundational set of beliefs, convictions things we hold dear about the basic makeup of our world. A worldview is what we hold dear about God and who He is, our Creator, about my neighbor and how I am to treat Him and love Him, about myself and who am I, who am I, and what am I to be in this world as a part of His creation. Because just like the field was the householder's, in the interpretation, what's the field? The field is the world. And I emphasized last week that the field is not the church. And that's important that we understand that because in the field of the world, good and evil grow together. But in the church, good and evil are not to grow together. <laughs> the church is to be a holy body of Jesus Christ. But the field is the world. And so everyone has a worldview. What's yours? What is a basic set of foundational beliefs that you have that you will not let go, that you hold dear, and you're going to let them guide you? That's a worldview. You have one, and it should be based on the Word of God, which is truth. So some of the worldview questions are like my origin. Where did I come from? Everybody has some kind of belief about that. We need to have our beliefs established in the Bible that we came from God and we're here by the grace of God. We're here in God's world. And why am I here for? What's my identity? Why am I here? I'm here to what? To become more like Jesus Christ and to glorify God. And morality or, or my utility, what's the purpose? What's my purpose of, of being here? To live out my salvation for the glory of God. And morality, how do I know right from wrong? People, more and more, as we've gotten away from the Word of God, let's not take it for granted that we just believe the Bible. There's a whole lot of people that don't know one little thing about the Bible in our culture, sad to say. 
Where are they getting their morality from? Where are they getting their worldview from? They're getting it from school, they're getting it from home, they're getting it from Hollywood, they're getting it from the media, they're getting it from all these directions, and there's such confusion. We of all people who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe the Bible, we must be really grounded on what truly ultimately matters. Origin, identity, utility, morality. How do I know right from wrong? Listen, God alone has the right to establish what is right and what is wrong. God alone can tell us what sin is and what righteousness is. And we need to obey God. And destiny, where am I going? Are you sure you know where you're going? Are you absolutely sure? Not like, well, I hope I'll go to heaven. No, I didn't ask that. Do you know you're going to heaven? Do you know you're a child of God? That changes everything. Now, science cannot answer these questions. Science can't tell you what's right and wrong. Science can't tell you where you're going to spend eternity. Science is important. Science is knowledge, and all knowledge is God's knowledge. But we need the Bible. So, just a few things. Last week, we looked at just one point, how we need to live fruitfully with strong... And I, I use the word faith, and that's really the word that I, that I mean. But if you want a really perfectly alliterated outline, you can use the word convictions, if you like alliteration. In other words, we need to live fruitfully with a, a faith, a strong faith in Jesus Christ and live by those convictions. And the first thing that really matters as I consider this parable is that we, we are fruitful like wheat. <laughs> and that we know we're a child of God because in the application, in the interpretation of the parable, the metaphor is the wheat and what's... What's the interpretation of, of that metaphor? Who's the wheat? The children of the kingdom. Are you sure you're a child of the kingdom? We need to have that strong faith that we are wheat, that we're a child of God. And we believe in his sovereignty, that the field is his, the field is the world, and God is sovereign as the son of man. Jesus Christ is the son of man, the owner of the field. The field is his, the field is Jesus's, and he's sovereign in salvation, he's sovereign in allowing evil in the world, he's sovereign in directing the events of the field to the day of the harvest. He's sovereign over everything. God is sovereign. He is in control. And we need to believe in the sovereignty of God, and we need to believe in God's salvation. And I finished last week just saying that wheat is a powerful and appropriate metaphor for God's people. Because wheat provides nutrition and health to the world. <laughs> and spiritually, that's what we should do. We should provide strength and health and nutrition, if you will, biblically, spiritually, emotionally, strong people of God. We're like wheat. Wheat must die before it brings forth fruit. And wheat, when it's ready to be harvested, bows. And so we need to have that humility to bow before God. Wheat is an apt and appropriate metaphor for God's people. But now I want us to go beyond this. And here's the second main point of this 
worldview parable and what really matters. Not only that we live fruitfully with strong faith and convictions in the Word of God, but that we live wisely to the counterfeits, to Satan's counterfeits. Because that's the whole point of the tares. And this parable teaches us, Jesus is teaching us, you are in desperate need of discernment. Because an enemy has come into the field and he has sown tares. And the tares look just like what? The wheat in its initial stages. And there is an enemy in the world, an enemy to God in this world. That's our worldview. There is, and who's the enemy in the parable? The devil. And he's real. In the interpretation of the earthly story, everything is real. There's nothing metaphorical about Satan. He is a real enemy of God, created as a high angel, but rebelled against God, and he is a counterfeit to the Creator. That's what this story is about. Very powerful words in verse 28 when the servant said, Did you not know, Master, that there's these tares sown? From whence has this field these tares? In verse 27. And the Master said, An enemy hath done this. And Jesus interprets that enemy in verse 39. Very clearly, who's the enemy? The enemy that sowed them is who? The devil. Okay, so now, this is what we need to, at least the basic point about tares we should understand, is it's a weed, it looks like wheat, it's indistinguishable in its early stages of growth from wheat. So here's tares and wheat. When they're green, you cannot really tell the difference. Surely a expert eye could tell the difference, but they look similar. But a tear produces no edible food or seed. And it becomes a host to fungus, and if eaten, it can be poisonous. Now, Vine's Dictionary says that the seeds of tares are poisonous to man and plant-eating animals. They can produce sleepiness, nausea, convulsions, and even death. So not only does the devil plant false seeds that are counterfeit to the truth, but dangerous seeds. And all that to say, we're in a dangerous world. And we are in desperate need of discernment and to live wisely to Satan's counterfeits. So that's an interesting picture. You see the wheat, how it's full of grain and so it's bowed over. You see that? Whereas the tares, you can tell at the time of harvest clearly the difference because the tares don't ripen into golden grain. They stay green. So there you can tell the difference when it's ready to be harvested. That's why the Lord's, the, 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 the homeowner says, wait until the harvest, then separate the tares from the wheat. So what does this tell us about Satan, really? What is Jesus trying to tell us about the devil here? 
we need to live wisely to his counterfeits because Satan's work, and I, the way I put it based on this passage, is his work is criminal because he does it at night when everyone's asleep, so he knows it's wrong. I mean, the, the one who was sowing these tares, he was, he was an intruder of a, of a land that wasn't his. He's a usurper. So actually what he's doing in the midst of the night when the servants are, are asleep and sowing these poisonous seeds that are good for what? What are they good for? Nothing. <laughs> they're good for nothing. Actually, they're bad. And his work is criminal, is cowardly, because he, he doesn't have enough boldness to do it in the day. He does it behind everybody's back, and it's cruel and dangerous. So Satan's work is criminal, cowardly, and cruel. And then another thing I say about his work is it's not an accident. In the parable, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is likened to a good man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. The enemy didn't sow tares in his field. The enemy sowed tares in someone else's field intentionally so there's an enemy in this world who does nothing think about this there's an enemy in this world who does nothing to further the kingdom of God and again as I said last week and this is very cut and dried and this is I know offensive if you're if you're not a Christian this is gonna offend you but I'm gonna say it because it's the truth there are two kinds of people in the world those who are saved and the children of God and those who are not saved and they're the children of the devil that's what this parable teaches too there's there's the wheat and the tares, and there's really no, no, there's nothing else. It's a worldview. So my worldview is people are either saved or lost. And when Jesus came to earth, what did he come to do? To seek and save the lost. There was no one else except the ones who were saved and the ones who were lost. So if there's an enemy in the field, and the field is in his, he's a thief, he's a usurper, he's a criminal, he's done it something intentionally dangerous to the field, let me ask you, who do you want to serve? The one who owns the field legitimately? God? God? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man who owns the field in the interpretation. Or do you, or do you want to serve the devil? That's your choice in this world. That, this is the teaching of Jesus. <laughs> so who do you want to serve? The sovereign God who is good or the devil who is the enemy of all good? So Satan is a counterfeiter. And this is so interesting because the Bible says, how many gods are there? But how many gods do people make? <laughs> You know, there's one God in the sense there's one God who is sovereign, who is creator, who is the Lord over everything. But yet, Satan is called the God of this world. He's the usurper, he's the thief, he's the liar, he's the murderer, he's the destroyer. And he's a counterfeiter. 
So God is the creator, Satan is the counterfeiter. Now, I would like for you to please go to 2 Corinthians. I want to just read a couple verses here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth, he was very concerned about the Corinthians. And he, was, he had a spiritual burden for them, almost jealous like a husband would be in a godly way jealous for his wife and for her love. He was jealous over them. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, in a loving and godly way that they would be gods, that they would serve God. He says, For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Verse 3, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. Even back then, he was a counterfeiter. He counterfeited as, as if he was something good. But he was a liar. And as he was afraid that as Eve was beguiled through the subtlety of the serpent, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity, the liberality, the love, the simplicity that is in Christ. Now verse 4 says, For if he that cometh preacheth, what? Another Jesus, whom ye have not preached. Or if you receive, what? Another spirit, which you have not received. Or another gospel, which you have not accepted. You might well bear with them. He says, you'll take it in as if it's something good. But another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel isn't good. It's from who? Who is it from? It's from the same serpent that deceived Eve. Isn't that something? And I could stand here all day and talk about another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit, and all these different religions, but, you know, we know Islam has another Jesus. Does Islam say they believe in... I've had Muslims tell me, oh, I believe in Jesus more than you. But does your, did your Jesus die on the cross? And was he buried and wrote, did he rise again? No. The Jesus of Islam does not. That's, that's what Jesus came to do. To do the gospel. They have another Jesus. You know, Mormonism has another Jesus. The Jesus of Mormonism used to be a man just like you. And Mormons believe that a man can become God. And Jesus just progressed in his afterlife to become a God. And there's hundreds or if maybe thousands just like Jesus. That's a lie. Mormonism is a wicked cult. It's from the devil. Jehovah Witnesses have another Jesus. They say he's created. Jesus is not created. He is eternal. He's the eternal Son of God. And if you don't believe Jesus is eternal, you have another Jesus. And Roman Catholicism, and I say this with a broken heart, I don't say, what makes me right? I, I'm not, the Bible's right, and the Bible's clear. Jesus Christ is not a piece of bread that we worship. We don't worship a wafer. We worship the risen Son of God who's seated at the Father's right hand. Amen. So I'll, I'll just stop there, but another gospel, another spirit, another Jesus, they're counterfeits, any counterfeit, is to deceive, it's dangerous, and it's from the devil. 
Imitation is one of Satan's main methods. And the only way we'll be able to discern the truth from the lie, from the imitation, is to know the truth so well that we will know the Spirit of God. We know the Gospel. We know the true Jesus. We, know, we have the true Holy Spirit. We have the true Gospel. And I'm not going to be deceived by the terrors of this world, because there are many. Now, this parable, as I thought about a worldview, one of the main reasons why people often endorse or, or adopt atheism. Think of this. Why are atheists often, not every atheist, but why, are, why do people often say, I don't believe in God? Because what's their main, one of the main arguments is, if there's a God who is powerful and good and loving, how could he allow such terrible, heinous, horrible events happen in the world? It's a good that's a powerful argument. We, we should have something to say to that. And there's a word that I'm going to throw out to you. Maybe you don't know it, maybe you do, but if you don't, I think we should. And it's the, it's the word theodicy. Can you say that? Theodicy. I even went on to the website to say, how do I say that? I want to say it right. It's theodicy. Theodicy. And theodicy is a word that deals with how do we defend that God is good. Is God good? Then why does he allow evil? Be this parable tells us that there's a good landowner, but what's in his field? The tares. And he says, let them grow together. So this is a worldview. Yes, God is good. But he does allow the terrors of evil in this world. Is God loving? That's our worldview. Yes, God is loving. So if He's loving, why does He allow such unloving things to happen? If God is powerful, why does He not stop all of the... So this is the argument of, many times, the atheist. Now, I will just say this. Is God a participant in the sowing or I should say it this way. Is the good landowner who sowed the wheat, is he a participant in any way in the sowing of the tares? No. And so the parallel there is, is God permits evil, but in no way is he a part of it or endorses it or is touched by it. It's the work of the enemy. Now, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I'm going to ask two questions, and I think they're good questions. To me, it kind of gets right to the heart of the issue of trying to deal with this problem of evil. And so this would be my theodicy, if you will, or statement to you to try to deal with this problem. Because the problem of evil in the world, is, a, is a, it can blow your mind up, you know, it can. So here's two questions that I have for you. The first question is this, and think about that question. Can you say it with me? The question is, was it right and good for God to create angels or men with a free will? Okay, was that, was that good? 
So at the end of the creation week, in Genesis chapter 1, it says God saw everything he made and behold it was what? Very good. And who did he make? He made man and woman and by then he had made the angels and he made angels and men with a free will. Now was that good? God says it was good. Do you think it was good? Do you agree with God? Now why was it good? Because God made us how? In His image. And that means we have to have a free will. Because God has a free will. God made us in His image. And in love, He made us in His image with a free will. And that was good. That was loving. That was His power at work. But it was a risk. (laughs) Because in creating angels and men with free will... It was the possibility, and it happened, that they would rebel and disobey. So that's the first question that I would ask somebody who is struggling with the existence of God. And isn't it amazing? The Bible doesn't deny that there's evil in the world. The Bible deals head on with this. The second question I would ask is, isn't God good? Isn't God loving? Isn't God powerful? To come to the earth himself in the person of Jesus Christ and live a perfectly sinless life untouched by the sins of the world and very discerning of the work of the counterfeiter, Satan, defeating him in all his temptations and then bearing your sins and my sins all the way to the cross and suffer and bleed and die on the cross and and facing the worst injustice that a man could possibly face in this world where there is often injustice and the question is often you know how could Something so bad happened to someone good. Well, there's none good. No, not one. But there is one good. His name is Jesus Christ. And there was bad things that happened to him. In other words, our great God entered this world of tares. And he died for the sins of the world. And then he defeated sin and Satan by rising again. I believe the gospel is a great answer to give to somebody who is questioning you know, so if, there's, if you know an atheist who says, I can't believe in God because of this, just say, well, I can believe in God because God entered this world of pain and suffering and sorrow. And he took it upon himself and he bore it more than any man ever has or will. And then he defeated all the sin of the world on the cross and then by his resurrection. The third main point, and quickly here, for our worldview, what really matters in this world of tares where there's evil? We must live fruitfully with strong convictions, faith in the Word of God. We must live wisely to Satan's counterfeits. And number three, we must live expectantly for the Savior's coming. Live expectantly. The Savior is coming. Now, the New Testament breathes the sure return of Jesus Christ. Men will mock us of this hope. And they'll even say, as was read this morning in 2 Peter chapter 3, where is the promise of His coming? 
But he is coming. And so the landowner says in verse 30, let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them and gather the wheat into my barns. And the harvest is the earthly story of, and it's, and it's a metaphor of what is real, and that is, in verse 39, the end of the world. Now look at that phrase, the end of the world, in verse 39. You see it in your Bible? The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. By the way, a lot of people think, you know, oh, the Bible's just a metaphor, and so you can interpret it however you want, and that's just your interpretation. You know, and, but, but the, I, the point of parables is real things are always being talked about. Real earthly things. Like, just as an example, in that verse, there's an enemy. He was real in the story. There's a harvest that was real in the story, and there were reapers. And then those are all metaphors for the devil who is very real, for the end of the world, which is coming and real, and for the angels who are real. Everything's real. <laughs> but the end of the world is coming. Verse 39, verse 40, we see the same phrase. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be when? In the end of the world now look look down in in another parable right in this chapter look at verse 49 it says so shall it be at the when end of the world when jesus is about to go to the cross the disciples ask him lord tell us the signs of your coming and of the end of the world and before jesus went to heaven ascended into heaven he said, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So this is an important phrase in Matthew's gospel, the end of the world. Now, things seem so permanent, don't they? It seems like things will never change. But the end of this world, and the world is age, the end of this age that we're living in is going to come. We don't know when, and I do not set dates. But I would go to 2 Peter, though, and I would like to make a point from this passage that was, was read. This is an amazing passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. It tells about the three great world epochs of time. And the phrases use the heavens and the earth three different times. The heavens and the earth that God created in Genesis chapter 1 is spoken of in verse 5. But the, then the heavens and earth, that heaven and earth was overflowed and there was a new heaven and earth, if you will, after the flood. So people who say, Peter's argument is this. Oh, you say the Lord is going to come back. But don't you know, in verse 4, this is the argument of the world. In Peter's day, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. In other words, people argue, you say Jesus is going to come back. Everything has just gone on the same way every day since the beginning of the creation. Are they right or wrong? They're wrong. They haven't continued on every day since the beginning of creation. God destroyed that world that was and established a new heaven and earth that is now. 
And just like he, uh, he destroyed that first world and established a new heaven and earth, he's coming again and he will establish a new heaven and earth. He will destroy this system of things, not with water, but with fire. That's Peter's argument. The end of the world is coming. And what kind of people should we be? There's so many verses, so many parables. But as I just thought about that, there's three words that I could give you. We, she, we need to be waiting. <laughs> Jesus said, wait for my coming, to wait for his son from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We need to be watching. Matthew 24, watch therefore, you know not what hour your Lord doth come. We're looking for that blessed hope. We don't know when it's going to be. And we're working. We, are, we need to be working. We need to be waiting and watching and working. And live expectantly for the Savior to come. He's coming again. <laughs> the end of the world is coming. And eternity is coming. Eternity is coming. Now, as I said earlier... Everything in this parable is real. And if you, if you walk through each of the points that Jesus actually gives the interpretation for, you have to conclude that eternity is coming and there's either an awful burning for the children of the devil and there's a glorious joyful experience of light and glory for the children of God. Eternity is coming. Now, go with me back again to Matthew 13. Look at verse 38. And I went through verse 39 quick, but let me go back up to verse 38. It says, the field is the world. So the field in the story, is that real in the story? Yeah, it's a real field, right? But the field is what? Is the world real? Oh, of course it is. We're in it right now. So the good seed, the good seed are actual seeds that were sown. They're the children of the kingdom. Our children, the seed is real. Are the children of God real? Are you real? I think you're real. Handle me and see, right? You can, okay, you're a real person. And then it says, the tares are the children of the of wicked. So the tares were real false seed. Are the children of the wicked real? Are there really people in this world that are against God? Yes. Verse 40, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels. They shall gather out of His kingdom things that do offend. And them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. So, in the story that Jesus gave, the tares were gathered, and it says they were, they were bound into bundles and burned. But then, in the real interpretation... Jesus doesn't use the word hell here, but he, he's speaking of hell and the, even the eternal state, the lake of fire. It says they will be cast into a furnace of fire. Is that real? Yeah. Because then the, 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 the wheat is gathered in the story. The wheat is gathered where? Into the barn. I love that. The wheat is gathered... Verse 30, into the barn. And what's the, what's the interpretation of that? The wheat gathered into the barn is, is the interpretation in verse 43. Can you read that? It says, the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
Now, is heaven real? <laughs> if heaven is real, so is hell. Now, I don't take delight in saying that. I don't, I don't even enjoy preaching about hell because I, don't, I know I could not put the awfulness in he- of hell in proper terminology. I've never been there, thankfully. I don't want to go there. But heaven is a real place. Beloved, hell is a real place. I know I'm backward. Many people might think I'm backward for saying that, but I believe the Bible. Jesus spoke of it. It's unimaginably awful. No words that I can speak can tell of its terror. And I'm not here to put you in fear. I'm here to tell you the truth. I I will tell you this. The end of the world is coming and eternity is coming. There are many servants of the devil who want to put you in all kinds of fear. And I'm going to give an example, get you really, uh, so you love me so much. Politicians are telling us we have 10 years to act or else we're going to destroy the world through climate change. Now, based on my worldview, that's an impossibility. It's impossible because man isn't going to thwart God's plan on planet Earth. They're trying to scare you to control you and coerce you with their policies. I am not afraid at all of man destroying the earth through, by hurting the climate. Now, that doesn't mean I, we should love our earth, we respect our earth, we want to treat everything nice and so forth, okay? I'm all for that. But what people really need to be afraid of isn't, are we going to destroy the earth through climate change? Oh no, what's going to happen to the world? Oh, if we keep driving our SUVs, I have to drive a stupid car. I mean a smart car. They are the stupidest little cars. That's like a death trap. Anyway. What people really need to be afraid about in all seriousness is spending an eternity in hell. Because that's the truth. This other stuff is... It's, it's not true. God is going to take care of his earth until he's ready to destroy it. And it isn't going to just be some little global warming. It's going to be a fire that's going to dissolve everything. And he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And it says the righteous shall shine as their... Look at it. What does it say? The righteous shall shine forth as the sun. Do you know why it says that? And that's real. We're going to shine in heaven because we'll see He. Who will we see? Jesus. And Jesus is what? Shining like the sun in all His glory in heaven. And when we see Him, we will be like Him and we will shine in the glory of our Father's kingdom forever and ever. Make sure you're a child of God. Establish your life on the truth of his word. Let's stand together as we pray. Oh, Father, help us today to be wise to the counterfeits, to Satan's counterfeits that are in this world. Help us to be fruitful 
as wheat with strong faith in you and help us to live with great expectation that you're going to come again and we're going to see you, Lord, and we will shine forth as the sun. We're not worthy of this. It's only by your grace when we believe on you, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that each person here would be truly saved if they are not. You came to save us, Lord. And if the devil has blinded the mind of anyone here that they will not believe the truth of the gospel, I pray that you would take those blinders off, that they would see they need Jesus. And let, that, Lord Jesus, you are the rightful king and sovereign of this world, and you are the one we are here to serve and glory, give glory to. And if we don't give glory to you, we are actually, we are unwittingly become servants of that wicked one. And we don't want that, Lord, for anyone. I don't want it for myself, God, please. We want to serve you, Lord, in spirit and worship you in spirit and truth.